Welcome to the CFA Society San Francisco podcast, where we interview and discuss current topics with leading members of the Bay Area investment community. This week, Tanya Subatang, Membership Manager with CFA Society San Francisco, sits down with Matthew O'Hara, CFA, Head of Portfolio Management and Research at Unison, to discuss mid-career transitions and the role of technology in the world of finance. Hi, Matt. Thank you for joining me this afternoon. Great to have you. Hi, Tanya. Good to be here. So jumping right in, you're already head of portfolio management and research at Unison. For those who might not know or be familiar with Unison, can you tell us a little bit more about that company and what you do there? Absolutely. So Unison has been around for a little while, but the idea that uh, we sort of implement is relatively novel. And the basic idea is that for people that have equity in their homes, so they built up some value on their homes, they want to get access to it somehow. And there are a few ways to do that. One of them is to in the mortgage. One is to sell your house and move and extract the equity that way, right? Sort of sell the asset. Another one is a reverse mortgage for people who work in retirement, which has some kind of interesting features. Or you can actually enter into a Unison contract. And Unison is not debt. It is equity in the sense that you're selling away part of your house ahead of time without having to move. So you get the benefit of living there, you know, enjoying all the sort of consumption value of your home without having to, you know, sort of make payments on any debt of any sort. So it's, you know, a pretty interesting, unique way of getting access to your value in your home without having to take on additional debt. So that's essentially it. And why am I here? So the company is what we call vertically integrated, meaning that we make the contracts. We go out and talk to people and say, hey, you're interested in this deal. But then we also manage the contracts inside of funds on behalf of clients. So my job, obviously, is to manage those funds. Very cool. So you went to school for mechanical engineering and you got your PhD in engineering at UC Berkeley. How did someone with your school background uh, get yourself into finance for a career? Yeah, I know I seem a little bit in left field here, right? It's actually not that uncommon for people with quantitative degrees to go into quantitative finance. And you'll find a lot of people, you know, at quantitative asset management companies that have degrees in engineering, pure, you know, sort of basic sciences, physics, chemistry, math, computer science, etc. Because a lot of the challenges that um, are presented inside of finance have analogies in other fields. So, you know, a lot of people sort of do that directly. I went through what's called the Master's in Financial Engineering program at UC Berkeley as well in the Hospital of Business. So I got the PhD degree in engineering. I worked as an engineer for a while. I enjoyed it quite a bit, but learned about quantitative finance. So I found it fascinating. I read Hull's book on derivatives, like all engineers do if they're getting into quantitative finance. Looked around for some jobs, but decided that getting a more formal education was probably more beneficial for me. So went and did the MFE program, enjoyed it quite a bit. And after leaving that program, I've been in quantitative finance ever since. Spent many years at what was then called Barclays Global Investors, which was then bought by BlackRock in December 2009. And I spent another roughly 11 years there before coming to Unison. Did you always, I mean, it sounded like you kind of fell into the career of finance, but, you know, did you always knew that you were going into engineering and maybe if you weren't in finance, what would that have career look like for you instead? Yeah, I would say that if you'd asked me when I was 10 years old what I wanted to do, I would say being an engineer is probably what I would have listed. Mm-hmm. Right? The idea of being an engineer appealed to me because it was interesting, mathematically challenging, and you were solving problems that helped people, right? Those mm-hmm. were kind of things that made sense to me. So I pursued that track. I was a pretty good student in mathematics. I wouldn't say I was, you know... <laughs> 
the best or some, <laughs> you meet some people who are brilliant, but, um, you know, I was pretty good and pursued that track going into college and it sort of fit everything that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And when I graduated from college, I looked around for jobs and, you know, there were interesting jobs at the time, but I felt like with a graduate degree, there were more interesting jobs available. Mm-hmm. So I continued my education and pursued a graduate degree. I got that. And I think that's probably right. At least from my perspective, there was more interesting work available to people with graduate degrees and it was great. And I enjoyed the time, you know, in engineering. Um, I worked in computer disk drives in particular, which, you know, most people don't think much about because you just hit save and it goes somewhere and then you hit retrieve yeah. and you <laughs> your data back. But it has to live somewhere. And so, you know, a lot of the data in the world was stored in computer disk drives. And it's a fascinating um, electromechanical device. And I really enjoyed working on them. But in the end, it was sort of very low margin and there wasn't a lot of money being made in the industry. Mm-hmm. So it was just made for a tough career. And that's why I looked around a bit at different things to do. So it wasn't the work itself. It was just the opportunities that existed in the field. So for me, when I happened upon quantitative finance, it appealed to me because it felt a lot like engineering. Mm-hmm. Right? You were solving a problem that people needed to get solved. And you were doing it in a very systematic way. And in the end, you were helping you know the world, if you want to think of it that way, get to a better place. So so a lot of the same goals were satisfied. Said, instead of working on disk drives and you know, magnetic rewrite surfaces, you know, I work on financial instruments. Did you find that your background in engineering helped you a lot in many of your positions? And, um, you know, please share with us some of the positions you've held because you've held a few. So I'm curious to know if how has having that engineering background helped you? Yeah. So when I went to the MFU program in the early 2000s, doing very complicated derivative valuation was sort of the hot topic. And my background in engineering, at least the mathematics that I had studied, lent itself very well to solving that problem. So if you were going from mechanical engineering or studying you know, fluids or solids and moving over to, say, very complicated derivative valuation and solving partial differential equations, a lot of the techniques that we learned in engineering uh, translated over very well. So in that regard, you know, I think that was helpful. And I did a, a project for Lehman Brothers, which kind of tells you how long it's been since I had that job, uh, <laughs> using engineering techniques to solve a very complicated derivative problem. Now, when I left uh, the MFE program, I got a full-time job at Barclays Global Investors, or BGI. It was very different, right? So um, asset management primarily is about forecasting returns and risk. And that wasn't as closely related to engineering. It was the engineering work that I had done. But, you know, being comfortable um, with mathematical techniques and being able to program, I think those things are translatable across a lot of different fields, mm-hmm. but certainly translatable into quantitative finance. But I'll also say I spent a lot of time learning about econometrics, right? So the idea of using economic data to forecast outcomes. And that probably is the most useful thing I learned post MFE in my finance career because you use that basically everywhere. Mm-hmm. In fact, Richard Grinnell, the head of research at the time at BGI, one of the authors of the book, Active Portfolio Management, said active management is forecasting, period, right? So if you want to boil it down to that level of simplicity, then econometrics is an important topic. And so I taught a lot of that myself. You know, very smart people at BGI as well I learned from. So I would also say it probably hits on a theme that's been consistent across my career, which is, you know, being intellectually curious and learning about new things as you go, mm-hmm. able to apply those new things, I think is very important. So for me, it's one thing to go from being an engineer to you know, going into quantitative finance, but it's another thing to continuously learn about the new things that you do. So this is a very long-winded answer, but to wrap it up, I would say engineering background is extremely useful by right? being able to understand mathematical concepts, being able to program, being able to learn about a problem and solve it, all very important. But continuously learning about new things, I think also very important. 
company. My first job at BGI was um, quantitative credit, right? So trying to come up with a long short fund that uh, sort of bought bonds and then shorted other bonds, you know, via derivatives. And then I worked in mortgages. I actually worked in subprime right around 2008, um, which didn't go so well. It didn't go well for a lot of people. And then I worked in uh, multi-asset investing, life cycle investing in particular. And that's a completely separate problem, right? This idea of uh, life cycle consumption. And so I've learned about all those things in my career. And for me, I find it very interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that kind of um, somewhat answers my, my next question I was going to ask you was that, you know, for many individuals, shifting positions and careers is scary. And they end up remaining where they are, whether it's through fear or being content. And so... What would you say is your motivating factor in transitioning into new roles and from what it sounds from the titles could be completely different from each other? Yeah, I mean, for me, I would say that intellectual curiosity led a lot of it. You know, what I found interesting, what I wanted to learn about, the things that I felt I could do and tried to go do. Part of it, I think, is lots to do with your personal sort of goals and how much risk aversion you have. And actually going back to that life cycle consumption theory, there are probably optimal times in your life when you would want to make a switch like that. So early in your career, before you've you know, taking a lot of responsibility at the time mm-hmm. or later in your career when you know, you've already sort of achieved a lot or, or made money and saved that money mm-hmm. or saved created capital. I think doing it mid-career is harder, right? Because mm-hmm. you build up a lot of expertise and you're trying to cash in on that expertise. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you think you have the ability to do it, I would say that, you know, one thing I've always done before switching is try to do a lot of due diligence ahead mm-hmm. of time to learn about the company, the field, the people involved, what's required to be successful, that sort of thing. That can reduce the risk of a move mm-hmm. because you can decide whether or not you're prepared for it and how much of a leap it would be to make that move. But look, I fully encourage people, I mean, I see you should pursue your passion. I think there's some truth in that. I wouldn't, that's a little bit of a cliche. I think if you're doing something that you like, it's certainly a lot easier to work hard and be good at it. It's a lot harder to be really good at something that you don't like. Yeah, that's <laughs> that true. Obvious, but that should probably guide a lot of people's uh, efforts. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, you know, they're at a certain point in their career and they want to continue to progress. It's going to require some effort on your part to do so. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is that the world is competitive. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a lot of really smart people out there who work really hard and are willing to learn and go do things. So you just have to face the fact that you have to be better than a lot of them if you want to, to get ahead. That's just uh, a reality. You know, I get a lot of conversations and... These are usually candidates who are trying to pursue their, you know, CFA designation or very much early on in their career. And some even, to your point, mid-career in they are starting, not necessarily question, but maybe started thinking, do I really want to stay in this path? And, you know, you've, you touched upon it already just earlier, but what advice would you give somebody who is considering a career leap? And, you know, is it the same advice you would give someone to your point that is maybe starting out in their career versus somebody who you mentioned earlier, a mid-level who's had all these years of expertise? What, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's true of finance, but probably true of most careers as well, is that you want to be close to the business of what your business does. And that sounds a little bit redundant, but you know, in asset management, it's managing assets, right? And either you want to be doing that or you want to be selling that, right? Those are probably the two most important roles you could imagine. And not to diminish the importance of other roles that are associated, but that's the business of asset management. I'm sure the same thing is true. You know, if you make software, right, you want to be the person that makes the software or if it's making widgets, you want to be the person that makes the widgets or responsible for that. So in asset management, I always encourage people to try to figure out a way to get to managing assets. And being an investment professional is very competitive. 
it's generally speaking pretty lucrative relative to other careers. And so there's a lot of competition to do it. Mm-hmm. The CFA credential is important, I think, for a lot of people because it really gives you a good flavor of what, you know, is involved in being an investment professional. And I think for a lot of people, it's a filtering mechanism. They go try to do it mm-hmm. and it doesn't work out well. And they think, well, maybe it's what I wanted in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And that's good to realize that, right? And know that. But for a lot of people who aren't in investment jobs, they do it and they really like it. Right? They learn a lot about investments and they go, wow, this is the place for me. I really want to be there. And then they realize, you know, this is the effort to put in to try to go and get that position. So, look, I would encourage people to learn what they can about the jobs that are important in their area and what it would take to get to those jobs mm-hmm. and and pursue it. And then if at some point they decide that it's not for them, mm-hmm. then be honest about you know what they do like and what is for them mm-hmm. and pursue that. Yeah. You're very big in technology. In the last part, we, you know, we talked about many different things. One of that is how technology, many aspects in finance and investment has become, you know, has helped it become more efficient. Do you think there is still space to grow for improvement or do you think it's already reached its peak? So, yeah, so it depends on what area of finance you're talking about. I think in areas like asset management, there's a lot of technology that's now coming into the field, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look back maybe 20, 30 years ago, a lot of asset management was done in what you call a very fundamental way. And so people sort of reading about markets, talking to people, talking to people at companies, forming an opinion, you know, making investments and that sort of thing. I think so a lot of those people still exist and you know, some are very good and have done very well. But I think it's harder to be good at that and harder to differentiate yourself doing that because once you figure out that you can take all this information in and actually get a competitive edge using technology, then it's sort of an arms race, right? And we're like, well, great. Well, if I'm going to have that, then that person's going to have this. I'm going to have more and more and more. And so you see that at the extreme, you know, there are some firms that probably process more data than anyone but the NSA, right? And you know, <laughs> use information to great effect, right? And they have very good returns. And if you're not playing that game, you have to sort of decide what game are you playing, right? Or what you know approach are you taking? So in that regard, I think that technology is not its peak, but you know, it's it's very well exercised, right, in that area. I think the opportunity in technology, though, is it's you know opening up areas of the world of finance that didn't really exist before. Mm-hmm. Right? For example, you know, using this as an example, right? So we go out and visit these contracts, right? We use technology to find people in the right places. But you know, you could equally use mortgages, right? So mortgages historically were very paper intensive and take a lot of time to underwrite people and you know, you understand the risks are. And now you can get a mortgage closed in less than two weeks, right? And that number is going down, not up. You know, there are people that will buy your home and you know, give you a competitive price for it and then turn around and sell it on their own. And they carry the risk of the home. Um, you can invest in, you know, decentralized finance. I'm not an expert in that area, but that's a whole area of technology that basically has created a monetary system to try to ease transactions, right? There's the buy now, pay later phenomenon, right? And you think, well, credit cards exist, but, you know, these things sort of have different economics and maybe they're easier to use and people like them and you can share them socially. Mm-hmm. Merging all those things. I mean, I wouldn't say they're in their infancy, but they're still very early days, mm-hmm. right? And all those things are, you know, being developed as we speak. And you can go out and buy partial shares of wine or mm-hmm. paintings or things like that, right? This is all enabled by technology. Obviously, a big one is investing in environmentally friendly investments, right? So ESG is technology per se, but normalizing and reporting around that, making sure that all that's being taken care of sort of properly and reporting back to end clients. A lot of technology has been developed around that, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, I would say in finance, you know, like a lot of industries, technology is playing a larger and larger role. And then also automating a lot of mundane tasks. 
And that's not super sexy, but mm-hmm. it's important, right, for the efficiency of the market. Mm-hmm. So it's not like there are people, you know, sort of just shuffling papers around while that's being sort of automated. So people can do higher and more important jobs. So, yeah, I, like I said, it really depends where you are uh, in the finance world. Some places, I'd say almost saturated, right, like very high level technology and hard to improve on. Other places, still very early. It sounds like you're very optimistic on the role that technology is playing when it comes to finance and investment. Is there anything you can think of or anything you've kind of thought and, and hope, you know, the downside of it? Yeah, look, I mean, like any uh, change, there are probably good and bad outcomes from it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's unavoidable. What are some of the bad outcomes? I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about using artificial intelligence to replace human decision making. Mm-hmm. But in many ways, a lot of AI basically replicates and automates human decision making. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of discussion around removing bias from decision making and being more fair about how people make decisions. And I don't think AI fixes that. It just sort of reflects that. Mm-hmm. So that's a potential, you know, bad outcome in the sense that if AI is used, you know, more widely without review, it could be extending or perpetuating biases in decision making versus, you know, let's use technology to try to improve and, and test fairness and improve fairness as a result of the algorithm. So, those are the sort of challenges that technology creates. It's faster, but not necessarily better unless we're careful about the way we implement it. Mm-hmm. No, very good points there. So what are you looking forward to when it comes to technology and finance in the future? Like what other things do you think in what spaces would you love to see more development? And for yourself, you know, do you have any ideas that you'd like to share and what maybe you're working on anything? Yeah. <laughs> um, that space. I mean, I would, so I'd harken back to my job. I worked in, um, like I said, this idea of life cycle consumption or, you know, how you invest over your lifetime. Mm-hmm. So there's some, I would say, pretty interesting models about how people make decisions and how they accumulate wealth over time. And the short answer is that when you're young, you have a lot of human capital, right? Which is sort of future paychecks ahead of you, but not a lot of financial capital. I and mean, you haven't saved a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's pretty straightforward, right? And then as you work, you convert your effort into wages and then you save those wages hopefully, and invest. And so figuring out a way to automate or make that more clear to people how they should be investing and how they should be saving over time and the decisions they make along the way and the impacts that they have, I think would be very useful. Mm-hmm. Now, there are people out there that do that, right? I'm not saying this doesn't exist, like some of the robo-advisors, et cetera, are doing things like this, right? They're sort of, I would say that's still early days, but you know, something that enabled people's financial decision-making across all their decisions would be useful, right? So it's mm-hmm. not just how do I invest my assets? It's what insurance should I carry? You know, what prices should I pay for things? Mm-hmm. How can I um, you know, optimize my debt? Etc. Like, how do I optimize my entire portfolio um, mm-hmm. decisions around money in a useful way without making it so burdensome that I have to go in and look at you know pages and pages of documents? Right. That's the biggest challenge, right? Like, I don't know about you, but you know, periodically I get these notices from my insurance company. I'm a reasonably careful or thoughtful person. I like to think so anyway. I don't have the time or the inclination to read those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And there could be things in there that are very obvious, like, hey, we're going to charge you twice as much <laughs> starting next year. And I wouldn't have paid attention. And, and it happens, right? And, you know, some way of automating that, right, I think would be pretty useful. It would be mm-hmm. very useful for the, the average person because the average person doesn't have the wherewithal to to manage that sort of thing. So, like I, you know, there is definitely some movement in that direction. You know, there's certainly advisors for higher net worth people who can help you through those things. But for that kind of bread and butter, you know, like 25th to 75th percentile person for of wealth and income, I mean, what solution do they have mm-hmm. to try to guide them through this process? And the short answer is right now, I don't think there is one. Yeah, I don't think so either. Right, I mean, pregnant 
if I'm wrong here, but uh, I think that that sort of technology development would be very useful and would be very powerful. Mm-hmm. You think having that kind of technology then helps increase someone's financial literacy because average Joe might not might understand one portion of it like we were talking about, but maybe has no idea what ESG investment is and has no idea what diversifying entails and you know whatever. Do you think that that's that all investments, right? Yeah. I mean things like, you know, insurance or, you know, that mm-hmm. often just like I don't think that you can really teach somebody all those things mm-hmm. in a meaningful way, you know, you know, in finite time, right? <laughs> it's just it's too much for too many people to take on, which is why I think that if you had something that you could optimize across all those dimensions for you, mm-hmm. that could be quite powerful. And not to harp on the subject, but my point is like, there's a lot of different solutions in different places, right? But it's hard to put them all together in a meaningful way for people. And so being able to automate that, I think would be very useful. Mm-hmm. So, so to your question, does it increase financial literacy? I don't know that it increases financial literacy per se. Like, I don't know that you would know necessarily what this algorithm is suggesting. Mm-hmm. But it would get you to a better outcome because you're benefiting from everyone's uh, intelligence. Mm. No, that's very true. I think any help that we can provide to anybody just you know to get themselves started and put in a better financial position is always a positive because i think that's something that we just don't i i know current school systems don't really teach so yeah. any form of think, understanding like said, sorry sure. no go ahead yeah, I, don't think, I don't think that they they can really effectively teach all those things right i think that you know maybe some guidelines you could apply but you know what i'm suggesting is that if there's a comprehensive way of helping people um you know, with the right commercial sort of application, I think it'd be very interesting. Matt, you definitely sound like the you know your your a lot of motivation and goal is to help people, and it's very endearing. Outside of work, are you part of any other associations or that you're currently seated in or, or supporting at the moment? As of right now, I'm not uh, associated with any nonprofits, but historically, um, I have done some tutoring. That was actually many years ago, but I tutored at the Tenderloin After School Program, which if anybody in San Francisco I would encourage you to take a look at and go help. They uh, help students primarily in the one, but I guess they can come from anywhere um, with their studies. I found it very rewarding. It was, you know, it was tough. It's hard to sort of build relationships over time to then finally make a difference in someone's life. But, you know, like I said, very rewarding. I've also been on another nonprofit board, uh, Bay Area Discovery Museum. Mm-hmm. It's also very laudable. They're trying to get people to sort of have these experiences um, in their childhood, and they actually do reach out to various groups and communities. Those are the primary ones I'm interested in or involved in. But I would say that, you know, my work historically has felt a lot more like engineering better solutions for people, for a wide mm-hmm. range of people. My work itself is where I spend most of my time trying to help. Oh, that's that's awesome. So a couple of final questions here. I know you have a busy afternoon ahead of you, but what's next for you, Matt? What's your next adventure? Or what do you what are you the most looking forward to in the future? Yeah, so I'm actually sort of a recent uh, arrival here at Unison, um, and like I said, although they've been around for a while, I think they're kind of poised for pretty big changes in growth. So you know, trying to see that through would be uh, quite interesting. I think also trying to help the um, retirement solutions space, right? Like I said, I spent a lot of my career on that. And I know there's a big demand for that. A lot of baby boomers are retiring. I think the number mm-hmm. of people quote is 10,000 a day. And, you know, a lot of people are looking for ways to consume effectively in retirement so they can have a uh, dignified retirement, maybe the best way to put it. So coming up with solutions in that space, maybe marrying all these things together would be very interesting for me because um, it would bring together all things I've done in my career. Uh, I would look forward to seeing what you can come up with in that. And my final question, um, who inspires you and why? 
Yeah, it's funny. I don't spend a lot of time <laughs> looking at uh, what other people are doing. And that's not to you know, put anybody down. I, no. <laughs> I just focus a lot more on the things that I'm doing. I, I would say for inspiration, I probably look at more historical figures, mm-hmm. people that have overcome challenges. I mean, probably will appreciate that uh, Abraham Lincoln is an interesting one. He has a great reputation as being very fair and mm-hmm. moral and treating people fairly mm-hmm. and kindly, uh, but also, you know, overcame a lot of challenges, right? He wasn't always successful, but basically sort of looked beyond all that and, you know, did very well. Probably go back a little bit further. <laughs> if you want to go back to the ancient <laughs> Greek tradition, I've been talking to uh, a colleague of mine recently a lot about Marcus Aurelius, mm. um, which is an interesting comment or reference, <laughs> primarily because, you know, his view was that you need to focus on the things that matter, right? Mm-hmm. And what are you trying to achieve? Because a lot of times you sort of bounce around a bit randomly in life, mm-hmm. you know, sort of what I'd call short-term optimization, like what should I do next? Is there this, this? But thinking about what you really are trying to achieve and what your purpose is, is hard. But if you can do it, it allows you to direct your efforts in a very meaningful way. Mm. Um, and, you know, to, to send that message to people or to share that message is not easy. And, you know, <laughs> I've learned that to give feedback is not always well received. You have to be careful about that. But you know, to be able to share that message, you know, I admire people who can do that. I didn't reach back to Marcus Aurelius, this, but he's <laughs> one of the original ones. That's I, I will say Abraham Lincoln and Marcus are ones I haven't heard of and I've asked everybody. So those are really great reference and, you know, great takeaways, really great um, inspiration. I think you pick really good ones. <laughs> well, Matt, thank you so much for chatting with me this afternoon. It was such a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Tanya. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CFA Society San Francisco podcast. We hope you enjoyed the engaging discussion. Please stay tuned for more episodes of this podcast featured every fourth Tuesday in our weekly newsletters and through the CFA Society San Francisco podcast channel available through most major podcast apps.